You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile F, the podcast. This is episode 251 called Alex Johnston. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that has helped thousands of women who have experienced recurrent pregnancy loss or IVF failure. The test helps detect inflammatory conditions of the uterus that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. The most common underlying condition of a positive Receptiva DX test is endometriosis with or without symptoms. If you or someone you know has struggled with IVF, Receptiva DX may give you the answer and treatment protocols that you're looking for. Talk with your doctor about Receptiva DX because the journey is so worth it. Plus, guys, Infertile AF listeners are getting $75 off the Receptiva DX test. So all you have to do is go to ReceptivaDX.com or download the app Receptiva DX, use code InfertileAF23, and you'll get $75 off. Thanks, Receptiva DX. This episode is sponsored by Smoo. Life is busy and keeping up with all of your daily vitamins can be exhausting. Smoo is here to simplify your health routine. Smoo's best-selling hormone balance powder is formulated with seven essential vitamins, minerals, and herbs that are all highly recommended for hormone balance, fertility, and PCOS. Now is the perfect time to give it a try with an exclusive early holiday offer just for Infertile AF podcast listeners. Enjoy a generous 10% off site-wide using the code Infertile AF at checkout. So go to the Smooco, which is T-H-E-S-M-O-O-C-O.com and use code Infertile AF and you'll get 10% off site-wide. Again, it's the Smooco, T-H-E-S-M-O-O-C-O.com and use code Infertile AF for 10% off site wide. Take a step towards a healthier, more balanced you today and try SMU. Thanks, SMU. All right, guys, another incredible guest today. It's Alex Johnston, who is an advocate for reproductive health. She is also the author of her book, Inconceivable, My Life-Altering, Eye-Opening Journey from Infertility to Motherhood. So she is going to tell us all of that, what her journey entails, how she came to have her three children. It's a wild and beautiful and roller coaster of a story. And she's also going to tell us about advocating and the importance of advocating and everything that she's doing today. So happy to have her on. Without further ado, this is Alex's infertility story. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm great, Allie. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations on your book, which is called Inconceivable. And we'll talk about all that. So I always love to start with the question, did you always want to be a mom? I love that question. I don't, I think I just took it for granted. I would be a mom. My mom had Mm -hmm. five kids in seven years. Having a lot of kids in the house growing up was a norm. I think I always assumed I would be a mom. And I think I was assumed I would be a mom with a lot of kids. 
Um, and so I never tapped into the desire. It was just a fact. And then mm-hmm. obviously the things went off the rails and I tapped into a very profound desire to be a mother that was very different from my assumptions and, and I had to fight pretty hard for it. Okay. So tell me about when you started to try, I know there's a lot, you know, that happened between being younger and then when you reached the point where, you know, you want to build a family, but tell me about that chapter in your life. Yeah. So I think I walked into family building, assuming it would be easy. I think it never crossed my mind that the choice would be taken away from me. So it seemed like it would be a choice that was mine. I would make the choice at the right time. And I felt like I controlled all of those pieces. I think the process of starting and realizing that I was losing control over this important decision was uh, hard and painful. I think about a year and a half in, once I got my fertility workup done, realizing that this may not happen. I was 34 at the time, it was devastating. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking how have I ended up in this situation partly of my own making and this beautiful choice that I want myself or any woman to be able to make uh, might not be mine to make. Um, that was a very, very hard process. So what led up to you having the fertility workup? What was going on in your life? So I was 32 and my husband and I decided to start trying. Uh, we had gotten married about 10 months earlier um, and we'd been together for a while. So it felt like, you know, the right time if there is one. I was nervous about giving up life without kids and the freedom and flexibility that comes along with that. But I felt like 32 was pretty responsible and wanted to get on top of it. Um, I felt like 35 was this invisible dividing line and everything I heard was like 35, 35. So I thought before 35, you're safe. After 35, you're less safe. So just make sure you're doing this before 35. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting because I never heard that number until I was in it. (laughs) And then I was like, oh shit, I'm 38. No one told me about 35. (laughs) And it just, it seems like such a false line now that I know what I know. Um, Right. We seem like the, you know, before and after. So I went to my doctor. She said, you know, 32, you're healthy, try for 12 months. Don't expect you'll have difficulties. If you did, we'd send you to see someone in the back of my mind. I thought, obviously that's not going to happen. We tried for 12 months, um, you know, 12 months of trying to make a baby with no success. It's a terrible experience for anyone who's done it. Um, there's no fun. Yeah. There's no joy. Uh, it's just right. Um, Were you having any losses or was it just not happening or what was going on? I literally never had a hint of a pregnancy. Like it just, um, until the bitter end, you know, when sort of my, the end of my story unfolds, you know, over seven years, there was not a hint of a pregnancy. So whatever happened, I just couldn't achieve a pregnancy. So we then were referred to a specialist, you know, as you know, it takes time to get in to see someone. So another four or five months, I got my fertility work up. And by then I was 34. And, you know, one of the first things she said to me was, um, your, your fertility is really bad. Uh, she said, you're borderline menopausal. You've had very few eggs left. Uh, and I said, Dr. Weisberg, I'm like I'm 34 and she said, Alex, by 34, 20% of you will be facing this. And I said, I don't understand how this is the first time I'm having this conversation. Like this feels like an epidemic. And that set off a chain of learning that I wish I had understood at 28, 29. And I really learned the things that I needed to know at 34 when I was deep in this and, you know, mm-hmm. a challenging one. Can you tell me about some of those specific things that you wish you knew then that you know now? Yeah, three things. One, our fertility on average as a woman peaks at 28. Uh, That was big news for me. I thought, you know, you could cruise along until you were sort of 40, 41, 42, and then it sort of stopped, but I didn't understand the realities of your biological clock. Uh, 
your individual fertility is your individual fertility. What we get is averages. So where you are in that average is, is really a very individual thing. Um, it's really easy to get your fertility workup done. It's not uh, hugely expensive. You know, in Canada where I live, it's covered by public health care, blood test and a scan of your ovaries, and it gives you some pretty good information. Mm-hmm. But if I had had that information, I wouldn't have started three years earlier, but I would have started more aggressively at 32 and not wasted two years before I got help. Those are the basic things. And those stats, like when she said to me, you know, at 34, 20% of you will be facing this, I thought, how have we been so irresponsible in discussing this that we're not telling women, you could be one of six, we're having babies in our 30s. There are realities that go along with that, make sure they're informed and they can make informed decisions that are right for them. Absolutely. So what did you learn from your workup specifically? Um, my FSH level, follicle stimulating hormone, the hormone that um, you know tells your brain to drop an egg was super high. And so it was borderline menopausal. Um, I remember doing the ultrasound of my ovaries and I said, what are those giant dark circles? Like there were these two beautiful kind of moon-like dark circles. And she said, those are your ovaries. And I thought, huh, that's weird. And then my, you know, those were the two basic things. And so then once the doctor explained what that meant, you know, she said, there's almost nothing left. And if we're going to do this, you're going to have to move to IVF right away. And we're going to have to try to do this aggressively and see what we can get out. But at 34, realizing I was on the cusp of menopause was a shock. And all of that information would have been available three, four, five years earlier if I was just doing annual fertility workups. Right. So when you, I, we, I love to talk about you know, what people knew when they were growing up. So like sex education, obviously that wasn't a part of yours, but what did you know about your fertility? And, you know, when you're in health class and high school and all that, like, what did you, what did you learn? Like for us, it was always don't get pregnant. It's so easy to get pregnant, period, end of story. It's so funny because I listened to some of your podcasts and I, the one with Tara Lipinski, so few people talk about this, but it's a huge opportunity. If we can actually talk about fertility and not just getting pregnant, but not getting pregnant, it's a big uh, shift for Mm -hmm. women. And so to start normalizing it, you know, like you, by the time I was 15 or 16, I knew three or four things I needed to do not to get pregnant. At no point did anyone talk about my biological clock in a way that resonated with me. 100% most women in their 20s are trying not to get pregnant. Um, And that's our focus. And then you pop out at, you know, 30, 31, 32, 35, and you're like, okay, I'm ready. This feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are only having that conversation at the time when you are likely to be running into obstacles and challenges, we're doing a disservice to women. 100% we should be pushing to make sure as part of a basic curriculum, mm-hmm. learning better bodies. And even if baby making is 15 to 20 years away, understand. And by the time you're in your twenties, be in a position to ask questions, ask mm-hmm. questions start thinking through what feels right for you. There are technologies now like egg freezing and embryo freezing that weren't available, you know, 10 years ago, let alone 2025, mm-hmm. not accessible for a lot of people because they are expensive, but the world has changed and the whole way we approach teaching women about their bodies and fertility has to change as well. Agreed. A hundred percent. I think it is, you know, slowly, but surely that, you know, the generations coming after us are are learning a little bit more. And, you know, like, like you said, normalizing the conversation, the more we talk about this, you know, even putting that seed in the back of people's minds when they're in high school or college that like, you know, there is going to be a drop off and in your mid thirties, like, had I known that I wouldn't have waited so long, you know, like I wouldn't have found myself in the, in the position that I was in. And I think so many others 
wouldn't either. Cause it's like, you look at the media and it's like, oh, this celebrity is having a baby at 50 and this one's 45 and they're not coming clean about how they got there, you know? Yeah. Um, and my daughters are 15 and they had an outstanding uh, phys ed teacher who was covering the sex ed curriculum and she was amazing um, and super progressive. And I saw the pamphlets when they came home a couple of years ago and they were progressive in so many ways, but there was no mention of anything other than, you know, not getting pregnant. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, 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 this is the time to normalize it and help them understand that there's a, there's a window. Um, and so they don't want that window to be 15, but they also don't want to be outside of their window. And I thought it's a simple thing to build that into that discussion at 13, 14, 15. We're just not doing totally. it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's go back to your story, Alex. What was happening next? So you got the work up, you know, did you change anything or, you know, did you start IVF right away then? I started IVF right away. Okay. I that I assumed it would be successful. I knew very little about fertility treatment. I knew generally that, you know, you had to get needles and stuff. And so I figured they like poke me with a couple of things and, you know, whatever needed to happen would sort of spring into action. And then we went through four rounds, which was the recommended number of rounds. I think we did five and nothing had happened and not a hint of a pregnancy. Um, my youngest sister, I've got four fantastic sisters. My youngest sister was uh, doing her PhD at the time uh, down in the US. And I asked her if she'd consider being an egg donor and she said yes. So we assumed that might be the issue. And we tried uh, using her eggs and that was not successful. Mm. Uh, How was that? How did that process go? Like, was it not awkward at all, but, you know, asking family members to do something like that. Was it pretty seamless or like, how did that, and how did your, you know, the whole family think about that? So two, uh, two sisters offered at different times, uh, mm -hmm. very, very touching. It was not awkward, but it's vulnerable. And so you're a big sister to a little sister and you're asking your little sister to do something that very few sisters ask another sister to do. I did feel vulnerable. Her response in retrospect was what I expect, which is very loving she really, really wanted me and my husband, she loves very much, uh, to have, uh, children. And even though this was not something she was considering for herself at the time, um, she was prepared to be a part of it. Uh, she like, you know, when I went through this with my middle sister, who's just a year and a half, um, younger than me, who had her own twins by then we worked through everything. Like, so the family barbecue, this is successful. Is it your kid or my kid? She's like, it's your kid. Um, you know, you deal with behavioral problems. Right, right, right. She said, I would be giving you my DNA, which is pretty close to your DNA. And I'm very comfortable with that. Um, so there was a practical component. There was an emotional component. There is a level of vulnerability asking someone to do something unusual. That's very meaningful. And both of them responded in the way I know them to be, which is uh, supportive and loving people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you said that the donor egg that whole situation, it didn't pan out how you wanted it to. What happened and what was next for you guys? So then we said, okay, we're at a fork in the road. I was always open to different ways of building our family, um, adoption, egg donor. I didn't know. We still didn't know what the problem was. My eggs were good. They just didn't do anything. And so mm -hmm. surrogacy was pretty uncommon. I knew one person who had used a surrogate it seemed pretty unusual at the time. Like there was still the debate, like, are you really going to let someone rent someone else's body to have a baby? This was almost 20 years ago. And so we ended up reaching out to someone who helped connect us to her previous surrogate and she became our surrogate. So we 
I met her. I felt good about it. I felt like this is a practical path to building our family. Um, she had done this before. She knew what this was. Mm-hmm. Um, she got pregnant very quickly and miscarried. And then she got pregnant again pretty quickly. And uh, she, you know, carried our our baby to term and, and uh, you know, a bunch of terrible things unfolded after that. Mm. And this episode is brought to you by Vegamore. I'm always trying to do right by my body. So when it comes to my hair and scalp health, finding a product that actually works and is made with clean ingredients always seems like a trade-off. But with Vegamore, I get products that are made with clean ingredients and give me visibly healthy hair and scalp. With Vegamore, I am able to have noticeably thicker, fuller, shinier, longer hair, all without the harsh ingredients. Every cute pink bottle of Vegamore products are 100% cruelty-free, and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Okay, so I got my box of Vegamore products, and I've been using them all for the past month. The shampoo, the conditioner, the grow hair serum, the hair foam, the eyelash serum, the eyebrow serum. It's been about a month, like I said, and my hair really does feel stronger and thicker. Everything looks better, and the shampoo in particular, I have to say, smells really good. The key is consistency in your routine for your most beautiful, healthy-looking hair. I use Vegamore Grow Hair Serum daily, and my hair and scalp are feeling better than ever. Here's another cool thing. Vegamore has these great value kits, like the Grow Essentials Kit, where you get to try more than one amazing product at a time at great savings. So when you sign up for a monthly subscription, you save more, and you never run low on the products that you need. And fun fact, guys, Vegamore sells one bottle of the Grow Hair Serum every 15 seconds on their website. That's how good this stuff is. So here is the deal, my beautiful listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off your first order by going to vegamore.com slash infertileaf and using code infertileaf at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertileaf, code infertileaf to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R dot com slash infertile AF, code infertile AF. Thanks, Vegamore. Do you mind getting into that? What happened? Yeah, so uh, she lived in a different city, so I went to all the doctor's appointments, and we went to our last doctor's appointment on a Sunday uh, just before the due date, which was that Tuesday, Um, and everything looked great, um, little baby girl. And I felt like a million bucks. Um, and I thought, I'm so grateful this is a possibility. Lucky us that we have ended up on this path because we now are becoming parents in this unique, uh, wonderful way. And the hospital said, we'll schedule an induction date for the Wednesday if it hasn't happened by the due date because the baby was big. Uh, and I think it was a Thursday to schedule it. So the Wednesday, uh, she did go into labor and called me at work. Um, so we drove to the hospital to meet her. Um, and we, we got there, um, they put us in a very weird, lonely room. Um, and I just felt like there was a weird vibe and I assumed they were going to tell me I couldn't be in the delivery room. And I thought that's frustrating because I want to be a part of this, but it is what it is. And, uh, a group of people eventually came down the hallway and came in to see us and told us the baby had died in labor and delivery. Oh my gosh. Um, And, uh, I just, I didn't even know where to go from there. So I'm so sorry. It was very, uh, it was very, I mean, it, you know, I'm emotionally fine at this stage of my life, but it felt really surreal. Uh, it was certainly uh, very different from the path that we expected to be on. 
So I called my middle sister, uh, who's a doctor, and I said, this has happened. I need you to deal with all the logistics and mechanics that need to be dealt with. Um, here's the hospital we're at. And I, I just got to go be with David, my husband. I've got to check in on my surrogate. Um, and I got to spend some time with our baby. So she managed whatever the horrible things are you have to manage to you know, deal with the Morgan stuff. And we spent the night in the hospital, you know, doing what we needed to do. Uh, super grateful. There was a man who comes to the hospital when there's a stillborn baby uh, to take pictures. I assume mm-hmm. he had no experience. He was so quiet. He was so unobtrusive. And a week or so later, when I got the pictures, I hardly remember him being there. But I was so grateful that he captured this experience because it was really all we had. Um, and so, you know, they're difficult, but I really cherish them. And I cherish him for being the kind of person who would do that. And mm-hmm. then made and uh, set off on the next stage of our journey. Right. So what happened? Did they ever tell you what the cause of that was? Yeah, I guess um, she went into labor and probably an hour away from the hospital and, you know, things progressed very quickly and the baby just died in distress trying to come out. So really was trying to come out. Uh, and by the time she got to the hospital, the baby just had uh, passed her first merconium, her stool, and had effectively inhaled it and suffocated to death. So sorry. So where do you go from there? Like what's the, you know, for anybody listening who's been through that, first of all, my heart goes out, you know, are, were you just, I would have been, I, I, I don't even know, you know, like, what do you do after that? Um, I do have to say shock is your friend. And so I feel like, uh, the first few days, you know, I was on sleeping pills and, uh, I had said to everyone in our community, um, like friends and extended family don't come like, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how you bury a baby, but I just, I don't feel like we need a ton of people and thank God everyone ignored us. And it's like, people just poured into my house and my parents' house. And within 48 hours, like friends from different cities and university and, um, uh, we're there. And then we ended up decamping to my parents who lived on a farm about an hour um, and a half away from me and people gathered there and we had a funeral. But I remember understanding for the first time, um, this is so painful because you became parents. Uh, and so you're experiencing the loss of that, not the joy of that. And I remember very early on saying to David, I think the only way we can get through this is to become parents again and experience the joy of parenthood. Um, and we committed to even in this sort of grief-stricken state, uh, grieving and uh, continuing to try to build our family, which is what we did. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of the family building, what did you guys do next? So we knew that we uh, could be successful with surrogacy. Um, and so we said that is an option, which has allowed us to use our embryos and, you know, have um, the, you know, beautiful opportunity to have someone carry for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, And how many embryos did you guys have left at this point? uh, I was still, it's funny you say that actually, when our surrogate was pregnant, I did four cycles to freeze embryos. So we probably had 12 or 15. Okay. We ended up finding a surrogate uh, in Indiana and Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up trying five times unsuccessfully and uh, we did not know why. Um, So a year later, we popped out. We had no frozen embryos left, but then my body was like a mess. I was really, everything was shutting down and, uh, we were still trying to do fresh cycles, but nothing was happening. 
And so I went to see our doctor. Uh, he's very, very good. Uh, he's been in this for a long time and sort of a pioneer in the field. And I said to him, I'm going to put together sort of a military operation. I will manage the financial and the emotional component. I need you to land the plane. And I need someone to make sure that we leave a hospital with a baby. And uh, he said, let's do this. Um, so I lined up my sister as a backup egg donor. We needed that. A friend tried to carry and our timing. Uh, she tried and uh, for strange reasons, it wasn't successful. But we ended up finding two surrogates, uh, one in Canada and one in the US. Uh, we worked with both of them simultaneously. Um, both ended up getting pregnant. As I describe in the book, my Green Bay surrogate, who I love, uh, called me at eight weeks to say she had miscarried, which was sad. We had a second pregnancy by then that uh, we were excited about. And at 18 weeks, 19 weeks, my Green Bay surrogate called to say they finally agreed to do another ultrasound and I am pregnant. Um, I did not miscarry. And uh, oh my gosh, you're expecting baby girl. Um, and so she, both of them then were caring and we're going to be due about three weeks apart. And then our Canadian surrogate at 28 weeks called me from the hospital and said, something's going on. My there's some leaking. So I've gone to the hospital and they're going to airlift me to a city hospital. Uh, so we met her there and they said, I don't think this is a problem. I think it's not going to be an issue. It's like urine and it'll be fine. And the next morning they called us and said, no, her uh, uterine sac is broken. Um, the baby's going to come anywhere between you know 12 hours from now or four or five weeks. We have no control over timing. So they put her on bed rest and she lasted about a week. And then our daughter, Georgia, was born at 29 weeks. And the hardest thing there, huge gratitude. Our surrogate did everything right. But that Sunday before she went into uh, labor that Monday, and we got a call at five in the morning saying it's happening now. So we went to the hospital. That Sunday, the whole conversation was like, you know, your child has a 10% chance of dying, a 10% mm. chance of cerebral palsy, a 10% chance of blindness, like all the risks. And that Monday when I was in the hospital and I was going through labor and delivery with my surrogate, the OBGYN found me in the hall and you know, tears were streaming down my face. And he said, um, what, what's going on? I said, like, Dr. Zaltz, I'm so frightened. And he said, he just took me by the arms and he said, Alex, it's going to be okay. Um, and I said, no one has oh. communicated to me anything other than the terrible, terrible risks to this tiny little baby who's coming into the world too early. And he said, it's going to be okay. Um, and I don't know if he had any scientific basis to say that, but it's probably the thing I'm most grateful for. I took a deep breath and our daughter Georgia was born and it was a long slog in the hospital for about three months in a, an incubator, but she is okay. Wow. That NICU life is, is really also, you know, another roller coaster of emotions, right? Tell me about having, you know, a baby at, you said 29 weeks, right? Yeah. I'd say the first three or four weeks were scary because we didn't know um, what the outcome would be. We were in this tiny crowded NICU. It was right before they moved hospitals and renovated it, but it was really like, you know, 1964. Um, your incubators were packed beside each other and you'd be, you know, your box would be to another family or couple losing their child and saying goodbye. And you knew in that room, there were kids who were going to be okay, kids who weren't going to make it and lots of um, kids in between. So it was very real. It was very emotional. I think around the four or five week mark, we actually felt like she was like growing and like she was just like, now that I know her, I'm like, oh my God, she's out of all 
the kids we have, like, thank God she was the one because she's like a feisty little. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, competitive swimmer. And she just like, she was so tenacious. And so they'd say, mm-hmm. she's, oh, we're going to learn her. She's doing the things we need her to do. The two things that, the three things that struck me, one, the medical care for preemies is exceptional. We really do value uh, little babies and we want them mm-hmm. to be okay. And so it was quite humbling what they invest in, uh, allowing that to happen. Uh, two, my husband, who's not super social, was like the mayor. Like he'd be there at five in the morning before work and everyone knew him. The nurses knew him. So they'd be like, David, that bell's going off. Can you tell me what's going on? I was like, it's okay. It's just the oxygen, but it's fine. And so it really was a world where he, we called him the mayor of the NICU. And it was the great equalizer. You had people who had a crazy amount of money there. You had, you know, street kids who had had a baby at 16. You had everyone in between. And we were all going through the same experience. And mm-hmm. It really felt like this equalizer and uh, it was a very human um, experience. But after four weeks, I definitely felt like she would be okay. And the one thing I'll say is a weekend, my husband went one morning at five and her uh, incubator was gone. So we assumed she had died and a nurse across the room looked at his Oh my face, God. Realized what was going on. And she ran across and she said, oh my God, we didn't call you in the night because we didn't want to wake you up. We had a bed shortage and out of all the babies here, the 30, she's doing the best. And so we moved her to the, you know, the next level with, and he was like, oh my God, thank God. But she said, yeah. and so we moved her because she's doing great, but it was, it was a very unusual experience. Wow. And how old is she today? She just turned 15. Oh my gosh. Okay. Amazing. So I know that's not the end of your family building journey, right? So tell me what happened next. So we had the girls, um, we brought, uh, so Sadie, Georgia was born September 22nd. Sadie was born December 22nd in Green Bay. And uh, we had an epic road trip home from Green Bay in a snowstorm and a 12-hour drive was about 24 hours. And my dad, my dad drove the whole way. Uh, David stayed home with Georgia, who was just out of the hospital. Um, and my dad ended up driving the last 10 hours in bare feet because he had to get out and change a flat tire at midnight near Chicago. And uh, got home, uh, started our uh, crazy life with two babies. And I was exhausted uh, and I felt like this is so, such a crazy feeling, like I can hardly keep my eyes open. And so I ended up seeing my doctor and she said, you're pregnant. So when the girls were three months and six months old, uh, we realized I was three months pregnant and I sat my husband down that night uh, to tell him. And I, uh, we sat in our kitchen and I told him, and then there was complete silence. And then eventually he said, am I the father? Ah! (laughs) Yes, you are the father. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah, this is happening. And so we just, we just had to process it. I was very happy. I wasn't super nervous. Like I felt like this, like as abnormal as this, the process getting here has been from all intents and purposes, you have perfectly normal pregnancy, but uh, I couldn't believe at this stage that we were now managing three kids in 15 months, um, mm-hmm. and embarrassment of riches, but it was really shocking. Yes. So after, you know, all of that and wow, that's a lot to have gone through. When did you realize that there was a book in there? While I was in it, I kept, and you'll probably appreciate this. Um, I kept thinking, try to capture some of this, like even being in a fertility waiting room. I love, uh, your phrase, um, the worst club with the best members. And I remember being in the waiting room and it was like, you know, I call this a wounded warrior. It's like you'd step outside and you put your game face on and you get on with your life and you go to work and you do your stuff. 
Um, and inside your heart was breaking in a million pieces. Mm-hmm. In the outside world, very few people saw that. But in that waiting room, we saw it in each other, like the sadness in your eyes. Um, you know, you had secondary infertility. And so sometimes people mm-hmm. would come their kids um, and then they were clearly trying. And part of you would be like happy for them. Part of you would be resentful. Like, how did you manage to do this? Like, I can't. There was so much unfolding in that waiting room. And, you know, I feel like it, um, you know, it, it was pretty intense. So we, I felt at the time, like there were things I wanted to capture, but it was, I was too in it. It was too raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a role at the time in government in sort of a senior policy role. And I was fighting like crazy for policy change to put this on the policy agenda. Um, and so we managed to get it into an election platform. And then we set up an expert panel and they made recommendations for support around adoption and support around fertility treatments. It went to cabinet and there was comfort with the adoption piece. It was not comfort with the fertility treatment piece. But fast forward four or five years, relentlessly, there were some people in government, even after I left, who really pushed very hard. And eventually changes were made to start funding one cycle of IVF. And through all that, I kept thinking, there's stuff here I want to capture. I just can't. I'm in it. And like, this is too much to be writing a story like you're, you know, an independent player here, like this is your life. And then seven or eight years out, I'm like, you're ready. Like, and to be honest, the story was about, I was so frustrated listening to 30 year old women or 34, Mm -hmm. your doctor had said, try for 12 months. Um, Right. You know, don't, no reason to, to be concerned. And I'm like, okay, well, 20, 25% of them at this age are going to have problems. So why are we telling them to go off and try for 12 months? Why aren't we saying, get your first Right. And then I realized nothing was changing. And then I wrote a pretty fact-heavy policy book, which was soundly rejected by publishers. And then I know I, that story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's so, you're like, no, no, this is good. And Did they give you the, like, no one's going to buy this, this won't sell, like, line that I kept getting when I was shopping a book? A hundred percent. And it's like, yeah. the the woman in Costco is not picking this up. And I'm like, and they said, no one wants a policy book on infertility. I said, I want a policy book on infertility. Yeah. Uh, so my very good book agent said, she said, Alex, I believe in this. I actually think it's a big issue. And I think your story is unique. She said, you have to tell your story and you can weave into that the learnings that you want to share, but it has to be grounded in your story. So I went back at it for another year and really embedded it in my story. And the learnings are there, but I'm not beating people over the head. And when publishers, mm-hmm. say, like, who's the audience? I guess someone who's been through this, you know, might find this interesting. I'm like, people who haven't been through this will find this interesting. Like mm-hmm. every grandparent, parent, friend, colleague who has someone they know going through this needs to understand. And if we can help them understand and fight for better benefits and say the right things and do the right things to help their person, that's a gift. And mm-hmm. the day the advocacy can be more intentional to push for two or three or four things that will help younger people have families. Mm-hmm. We did, but yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, it's a humbling process. And that was the vulnerable piece. You know, I did a forward for the book. That's like a page and it's like tiny. And I realized that in retrospect, the forward and the thank yous was so tiny. Cause I didn't know I thought if this is an insignificant little book, I don't want to be like taking myself too seriously and thanking people who are like, I don't want to be associated with that tiny weird little book. And in the end, it's been an amazing experience. Um, you know, I wanted to continue to have impact, but I realized I was shrinking myself having not done this before. And I actually feel like now I've claimed space that I feel very comfortable in because I do not want, you know, 30 year old women and men to have to go through 
what I and others have gone through to have a family with no information, very little support and walk Mm -hmm. in building with blinders on. And, you know, I feel great about um, advocating in this space. I think it's really important. Mm -hmm. Tell me some more about um, other things you've done in terms of advocating, getting the word out, you know, blasting these stigmas, all the things that, you know, we're all trying to do. Um, the book, it's, I mean, the book, the author royalties for the book go to the two main advocacy groups. Um, they do great work. Uh, trying to amplify that work and work together has been big. Paul, and what are those? At Conceivable Dreams and Fertility Matters. And Fertility okay. Matters has really worked very uh, effectively on health benefits, which is a game changer. So it started to change in the U.S. five or six years ago. Uh, that's now starting to cascade to other large companies, um, you know, in Canada, around the world. And so going from no benefits to 5,000 lifetime to 25,000 lifetime, maybe 40,000 lifetime, that allows people to try to have a family. So uh, working closely with them, the reason I wanted to write the book was I didn't, like I would accost people in coffee shops. So I would hear two women who were like 31 (laughs) talking about family planning and they'd be like, well, you know, I'd like a baby one day. And I'm like, you're like, what? (laughs) You don't know who I am. And I don't know how old you are, but I assume you're in your thirties. Go get your fertility work at that. And almost always, instead of looking at me, like I was a nut, we talk a little bit about it and they'd always say, thank you. I've never heard this before. I'm like, I know. So the book is trying to be very deliberate, very purposeful, putting the story on the table with the view to policy change. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's getting your work up done. That is making sure family doctors are talking about this. It's not OBGYNs. It's before you are in that world. It's your family doctor saying, hey, would you want to get a fertility uh, baseline? And then let's Mm -hmm. track it uh, year over year from the time you're about 28 onward. Just so you have information, you can make informed choices. It's companies looking at their benefits and saying this really matters to young men and women. The decision to have a family is a very personal one. Uh, but it really matters to people and matters to our identity to be able to make that decision. And mm-hmm. then governments recognizing that in the 21st century, women, men, single people, couples, including same-sex couples, want the ability to have a family. We need to change the way we approach family building and re- reflect that mm-hmm. the world is different and the possibilities are different, but we've got to make those accessible. Right, exactly. So your this book is Inconceivable, My Life-Altering, Eye-Opening Journey from Infertility to Motherhood. Tell me about writing the actual book. What was, what was, was any of it real painful to revisit? No, I think most of it was really enjoyable. It's a disciplined process. Like, it's not like you sit down and you're like, oh, like, you know, a wave of creativity has hit me. It's like, what are the chapters I want to write? You know, what's the factual stuff I want to get in there? Um, you know, tons of editing, lots of moving the furniture around to make sure the flow is proper. So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a practical piece that was very real and disciplined None of it was painful. I think the two, I think when I started writing the book, I realized that I had never brought my daughter Sam's ashes home um, at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, I don't even know where they went. I couldn't, I couldn't have them. And it just felt so deeply offensive to bring her home in a box. Uh, I just couldn't face it. And I realized in writing the book, I had to bring her home. I realized if I was telling my story publicly, I couldn't have my kids ask me about this and have nothing tangible to connect them to their sister. So I went and I looked in my mom's room and I knew she had them somewhere. And I was like, is it like a drawer or a closet? And I was up in their bedroom and I couldn't find them. I was like, good God, I hope she didn't lose them. Mm. Um, and then I looked across their bedroom and I saw this little 
um, set of things on a table, like a brush from her great grandmother, a picture of her mother, a picture of uh, her great grandmother she loved. And then there was this box in the middle and I'm like, oh my God, that's Sam. And I said, I've walked by that a hundred times. I just didn't know what it was. It was a little velvet bag and box. And I took oh my God. And it had the inscription saying Sam Johnston Pickwode on August 29th, 2004, five, 2005. And uh, I brought them home. And I remember that was different. I was like, you've not been able to cross that threshold ever and you have to cross it now. And it felt hard and good. Mm-hmm. And I realized in writing the book, I am fine. But I realized there's a part of me that I have contained where I can access memories of that night and memories of holding Sam that is hard, but I need to go to sometimes because it's my only way of being with her um, and I wouldn't lose it for anything, but I don't want to live there and I don't want to live that way. I really want to live a full life and a happy life and I want to live with my kids that I'm raising. And so going back to that place is a place I can access in a heartbeat, but I choose not to mostly because I don't want to live in a dark place. you guys so much for listening don't forget to check out fertility rally guys if you're looking for a group of people who get it there's hundreds of people in our group we have support groups five to six times per week virtually you can come to as many as you'd like and you can come you can listen you can share you can just be there you don't have to share but it's a really safe space we also have a website full of videos expert videos all of our past rally live videos are on there now too And we've got IRL and virtual events and three private Facebook groups where you can ask questions and share stories and share resources and vent and just get to know each other. It is the worst club with the best members. We would love to have you check us out now at fertilityrally.com. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM me at infertility of stories. Also, if you have two seconds to rate and review this podcast, that would be super helpful just in getting it noticed and bumped up into the algorithm. The more people we reach, the better. So thank you guys. And thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.